0: Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment therefore that we should make it difficult we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals and from blood for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every sabbath Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The Apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Good morning again, everyone. As always, it's a true joy and a privilege to bring you the word, and This morning we're back in our ACTS sermon series. As Carlos has mentioned, we took a break from our ACTS series and spent some important time reflecting on our talents, our time, and our treasures. I pray that we will be diligent and active in answering, how do I steward well my life for his sake and for his glory? Now we're back in ACTS. And I think it might be helpful if I give somewhat of a recap of where we've been. The risen Jesus ascended into heaven, but his followers, and that's us also, were not left orphans. We he heard and celebrated the birth of the church and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And now empowered by the Holy Spirit, we see the church being diligent and active in the mission Jesus gave them. Remember in Acts chapter 1, you are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is important. This is the mission for the church then. This is the mission for the church now to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. God wants to reconcile every single person to himself and so filled with the presence of God and aware of everything around them the church, go out boldly to witness the good news about his kingdom as they wait for his return one day. And we see that the community of God begins to grow. We heard about the glorious experience of Saul on the Damascus Road. A persecutor of the faithful was stopped in his tracks by Jesus himself. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in a radical encounter with God's grace, Saul joins the church. And on top of that, Jesus has selected Saul to be his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. We heard in chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit had set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work to which the Holy Spirit had called them. And so the church of Antioch sent these saints, Paul and Barnabas, to go out into Asia Minor. That's the first missionary journey. And chapter 14 ended with this. If you can, turn with me to Acts 14, verse 27. On arriving there, this is back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So what began in Jerusalem is now indeed spreading to the ends of the earth. More and more Gentiles are beginning to accept Jesus as the Lord of their life. They're repenting and they're entering into God's community. That's where we were at. That's when we took a break in our sermon series. And now we're in Acts chapter 15, a passage that is so central for us and for our mission. It articulates the gospel well, and so we would do well to take note. My focus is going to be on the first part of the reading from this morning. The council is clear on how someone is saved. I will focus on that. As we unpack this message, Let us first turn to God in prayer to help us to do so. Let us pray. Father, we know that your word is life-giving. I pray that it gives us life this morning. I pray we not just hear your word, but may we be transformed by it, and through your spirit, may we live it out. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, may be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Christ our Lord. Amen. A sermon I find very convicting and that I often revisit is one by Anthony Bloom. Anthony Bloom is an Orthodox bishop of the 20th century. One Sunday morning, the bishop got up to preach as he normally would. However, he went on to preach the shortest sermon he ever did. And I share it with you. Last night, a woman with a child came to this church. She was in trousers and no headscarf. Someone scolded her. She left. I do not know who did that, but I'm commanding that person to pray for her and her child to the end of his days, to God for their salvation. Because of you, she may never go to the church again. He turned around, head down, and he entered the altar. That was his sermon that morning. Anthony Bloom, a man, a bishop known for his gracious and gentle nature, what caused him to be so upset that morning? In our reading, we also see two Christian leaders rightly upset because of the same thing. So we see Paul and Barnabas there in Antioch. Remember in chapter 14, they've returned and they're filled with great joy at how God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God is bringing people to himself, Jews and non-Jews. And Paul and Barnabas complete their first missionary journey. The gospel has begun to take a greater root among the Gentiles. The church of Antioch is this multicultural community of Jews and non-Jews all who have been redeemed in the one Messiah, Jesus, all who have the one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, all who are filled by the one Holy Spirit, all who worship the one true God and form the one true people of God, the one church, all have the one faith that has opened the door of salvation and, is, and, and so they're filled with joy for these brothers and sisters, these Gentiles. And in all of that, And all of that, Jewish Christians from Judea come down to Antioch. This is Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They came to teach, but they ended up preaching nothing short of heresy. That is, they commit false teaching to the highest degree. They say to their fellow believers that no one can be saved unless they have been circumcised and follow the customs taught by Moses. Now, I don't doubt that they think this is a God-honoring move. But what are they actually suggesting by demanding this? Why do Paul and Barnabas get in such a sharp debate with their fellow Jewish Christians? Why does there need to be an entire council of apostles and elders gathered in Jerusalem? What is at stake here? Let me tell you what's at stake here. It is the very gospel that is at stake here. It is what the death and resurrection of Jesus has accomplished That is at stake here. It is the very doctrines of justification by grace through faith that is at stake here. All of that is compromised as soon as they say these Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. So, Paul and Barnabas, they'll have none of it. They have an argument in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas and some other believers are appointed by the church in Antioch to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders, and they get to Jerusalem, and they are welcomed by the church, and they begin to report everything that God has done through them, sharing the way God is bringing Gentiles into his kingdom. That should have been the end of it. God is doing this work. Do not oppose it. Yet some of the believers are adamant in their position. We read in verse 5, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders consider this. There is much discussion. There's a fierce debate. I want to do my best to articulate why. Why was it so important for this group of Christian Pharisees to have these Gentile converts circumcised? The Pharisees were a devout group within Judaism, a group that cared about holiness. They wanted everyone in Israel to be holy, not just priests and prophets and religious figures and teachers. No, they wanted every man, woman and child to be holy because the God they worship is holy and demands holiness. I think this is a good thing. I think we can get behind that. And it might seem strange in our context for them to be demanding circumcision for holiness. But in a biblical context, this viewpoint is understandable. God instituted circumcision as a sign of belonging to his covenant people and mandated observance of the law of Moses to be in a state of holiness depended on this observance. You couldn't observe the law without entering into the covenant, which was through circumcision. Hence the demand for circumcision. Circumcision allowed entry into the covenant people of God. Following the law maintained that identity of being set apart holy. But Jesus, but Jesus in his life and death fulfills the law and renews the covenant. Now Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith in him and are incorporated into the church. That is the covenant people. As in all who believe in Jesus are now covenant people without needing to be circumcised. If the status of covenant membership came through the law of Moses and circumcision, then you don't need a crucified Messiah. In a parallel situation in Galatians 2, that's exactly what Paul says. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what this group is doing, no matter what their intentions are, is teaching heresy and testing God. The question's been asked, a debate has happened, a council has been gathered, and now St. Peter gets up. Peter, he's got this preeminent place in the church, and he addresses the council, and he seeks to answer the question of how a Gentile is saved, how anyone is saved. With his apostolic authority he recounts an experience he has had. He reminds them of what happened with Cornelius. Remember in Acts chapter 10 he says this, this is verse 7, brothers you know that some time ago God made a choice among you God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter is clear. This is God who has made the choice the gentiles would hear and that they would believe Jews and gentiles alike are saved through faith in Jesus to disregard this is to abandon the gospel truth that we are saved by the grace of Christ and Peter uses strong language rightly so Peter accuses them of testing God you are challenging God's authority here you are burdening the Gentile converts with something that we and our ancestors could not keep. Here Peter firmly upholds the gospel. And I ask you now to pay close attention. This is a doctrinal statement that I want us to hold dearly and remind ourselves often. Every Christian must. It's from verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Both Jew and Gentile saved by pure, unmerited grace, the same grace that flows out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this causes a silence to fall upon the council. Paul and Barnabas are now able to clearly articulate how God is revealing himself to the Gentiles. And the whole council listens. The last to speak is James this wonderful leader in the church of Jerusalem. He backs up what Peter has to say through scripture. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it and the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things things known from long ago. James quotes the prophet Amos. When God gathers back his people and allows his presence to be among them once more, as in the temple, Gentiles will be included. God has chosen a new place to dwell. That was the coming of the Holy Spirit in all who reside in the Messiah Jesus. Who's in the Messiah Jesus? Jew and even Gentile, all who believe in faith. In other words, James sees clearly that Scripture teaches that when God starts his new temple, when he gathers his covenant people, Gentiles will enter it also. Based on the testimony of Peter, based on the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, and importantly, importantly, it's biblical confirmation. This is how James reacts. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I want us to pause here because it's important for us not to misunderstand what happens next. The debate over how a Gentile was saved is over. The debate over how anyone is justified is over. It is through God's grace and faith in Jesus that one is saved. What happens next is that a decree is made for the sake of their sanctification and, importantly, the fellowship of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians are asked to abstain from four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals and blood. And a letter is written to these Gentile believers and it's sent in person by some from Jerusalem endorsed by the council and Paul and Barnabas and this causes great joy and the believers are encouraged and strengthened. Well, there's much to draw out of this passage, I want us to stay at the heart of the passage and that's the gospel. That's the good news of how salvation has come to us. How I have been justified, how you have been justified, and how others will be justified. I think there's a wonderful application here on how we can be witnesses and the dangers of witnessing when we do not comprehend the grace of God. Remember the context of Acts. Jesus has ascended, but we are not to wait looking up at the sky, but rather we're sent out in mission, we're called to be witnesses... That's the mission of the Church of Acts, and that's the mission of the Church today. And Paul and Barnabas, and being faithful to that mission, are sharing with Gentiles, non-Jews, and every single person who has given their life to Jesus is sent on that same mission, is called to be a faithful witness. But if we don't comprehend grace, we will never be able to witness to what Jesus has done. That's what went wrong. Some of these believers were calling out other believers, calling them out and saying, you're not really saved unless you do this, unless you get circumcised. To become people of God, you need to be circumcised. No, to become people of God, you need to be in Jesus. And that is through grace by faith. James articulates what these Pharisaic believers are doing. They are making it difficult For the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is putting something in the way of them saying yes to Jesus. That is why Paul and Barnabas were so fierce and sharp in their disagreement. Do you not understand that Jesus has died for these people? And rather than pointing to Jesus and testifying to the free gift that he is offering, a way for a sinner to be reconciled to the Lord of life, the Lord of the universe, that all you have to do is to repent and believe in Jesus, that he's died and risen from the dead, rather than saying faith is how you become people of God, you are putting an obstacle in their way to turn to God. You are requiring of them works to be justified. You are shaming them for not being what you deem to be holy. This is a serious matter, and I put it to you that these Christians do not understand the grace of God. And I put it to you when any believer does not understand, grasp the weightiness, treasure and deeply cherish the grace of God that has been poured out in Christ Jesus, they will never be able to witness. They will make it difficult for people to turn to God. This is because they are witnessing and operating out of a different gospel, something foreign to scripture and repugnant to it. And while it's easy to say we operate out of and witness to the gospel of grace, I actually think the church has been a poor witness. There's a common perception among non Christians about believers. I would like to say this is entirely a caricature, but I'm not sure it is. Our Christians, they're judgmental, they think they're superior, they impose their ideals. That's what we might hear, and I don't think the way to respond is by playing the victim and saying, man, we're being persecuted, though I don't doubt that either. But this perception exists because so often Christians don't live and don't witness as though we cherish grace. How can we be judgmental? How can we hold ourselves superior? The only difference between me and a non-Christian is Jesus. A Christian and a non-Christian are both sinners, are both wretched. The only difference is the grace a Christian has received through faith in Jesus. Paul got it. He cherished grace. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Do you accept that? And with knowing our condition, the worst sinner... And knowing what Jesus has done, he's come to save sinners, you cannot then go ahead and make it difficult for others to turn to God. It just doesn't work like that. Either you understand and experience grace and therefore you operate out of it, or you don't understand what Jesus has done for you and you operate out of another gospel. What do we put in front of people as an extra to the gospel of grace? You must accept the gospel, but you have to accept this also and do this and believe that. You are called to be witnesses. You are called to proclaim the gospel and evangelize through word and deed everywhere you go and everywhere you are. And if people are going to reject the gospel, let them do it because they have rejected the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, not because you have put an obstacle in their way. made it difficult for them to turn to God. This is exactly why Paul and Barnabas were so angered and willing to have a sharp debate with other believers. This is why Bishop Anthony Bloom rebuked the person who scolded a woman for being in trousers and with no head covering. Like she's not a Christian and she steps into the church and in a moment of weakness She turns to God, hoping that in this building that promises hope, promises hope that someone will be able to share the sweet news of a saviour. She knows where her life is at. She's a single mother with a baby on her knees, but she turns to God in a desperate moment. And what happens? A person who should have extended the grace of God that they had so freely received, rebuked her. And told her that her head should be covered. And so she leaves the church. She may never come to Jesus. And I hope that no one here is hearing me say that we compromise the teachings of Christ. And walking in the way of holiness. I'm not. All I am stressing is that we need to be rigid and firm on the gospel of grace. Tim Keller makes an excellent point. This is what operating out of grace looks like. You go back to the earliest days of the church, and here's the Roman Empire, and it's a pluralist society. Everyone has got their own God. That's real open-minded, right? And then you've got Christians who are witnesses that Jesus is the true God, and they're very, very rigid to that. And yet the lives of the pagans and Christians were different. The pagans looked down their nose to the poor. Christians loved the poor. The pagans were very stratified. They never mixed with different classes and social strata. Christians got everybody together, races together, classes together. Indeed, the Christian life, it's about holiness. But how did you enter into that life? Not because of anything you did. Jesus transforms every life that he encounters. None of us are where we were when we first met Jesus. But we all came to Jesus as we were. And he began transforming us. And he will transform us this side of eternity and more perfectly, completely perfectly, the next side. But don't ever forget that Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom you and I are the worst. If we demand that people come to Jesus already healed, already transformed, earning their way through their works, if we teach that to be part of God's people you need anything other than faith in Jesus, then we make the cross of Christ null and void. The council at a crucial moment in the life of the church made a declaration as I'm coming to the end, I want to once again highlight two things from the life of this council that will allow us to faithfully obey Jesus' instruction to be witnesses. First, let us join in affirming the great doctrinal statement of the council. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. If we do this... If we can affirm this and truly affirm it, then we can do the next thing. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for anyone turning to God. Only then can we be testifying to the power of God's grace in our life and saying, come to God. We can say, oh, let all who thirst, let them come to the water. And let all who have nothing, let them come to the Lord. Without money, without price, why should they pay the price except for the Lord? And let all who are seeking, let them come to the water. And let all who have nothing, let them come to the Lord without money, without strife. Why should you spend your life except for the Lord? When we understand the grace of God and truly experience it, when we cherish it and truly treasure it, then we will be able to realize how we ourselves have been saved. Then and only then we will be able to witness to the gospel of grace to others. I was broken and defeated, penniless and naked. That was my spiritual condition, separated from God in a state of sin and death. But now I am saved because of my faith in Jesus. The shackles have been dropped. I am washed clean in his blood and robed in his righteousness. That is the glorious Good news of grace. Only then, only then we as true beggars can say to the other beggars, come you who have nothing, no good works, no honor, no money. Jesus died for you who are weak and have nothing. Jesus died for sinners like you and I. Repent and believe in him who can redeem you and save you from the wrath to come then we will be able to share the gospel of grace. Let me pray for us that we might as a church and as individuals more deeply appreciate, experience, and operate out of God's grace. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your pursuit of us. While we were far off, you sent your son Jesus to die for us so that whoever may believe in him will receive eternal life and fellowship with you. Father, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who has not heard the gospel of grace until today. I pray that they may receive it as a sweet message, one that brings them relief. I pray that you draw them to you, show them who they are without you, lost, sinful, deserving of death. And show them that this does not have to be so because of what Jesus has done. If only they repent and believe they may be saved. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, who have entered into your covenant people only because of your grace in Christ Jesus. Help us to embrace and operate out of a gospel of grace. It is so easy to forget who we were before we found you, before you found us. Help us to always remember that Jesus died for sinners, of which we are the worst. And in remembering that, help us to be bold and quick to share and witness to your grace in our lives to those around us. Pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.